We have a lot of ground to cover today. Uh, I, I, I want to I begin uh, saying this. Janice asked me, how are you doing? And I told her, I'm like, nah. Heart is pretty heavy today, and I want to kind of share with you why. Uh, a couple, couple of things. Um, I feel like I'm going to get emotional today, so I'm just warning you. Um, I need your prayers. This upcoming weekend, uh, I'm going to be flying out to Sacramento um, to preach at a church. Bayside, a South Sacramento church. Um, I've been preaching at this church about once or twice a year for the last four or five years. Uh, it's one of the larger, more healthy, multi-ethnic churches in our denomination. And um, the senior pastor, who was a close friend of mine, passed away about a month ago. Um, massive heart attack, massive heart attack, coronary, while he was in a counseling session with somebody. And uh, and I found out uh, through one of their staff who contacted me, and it was an utter shock. He was 54, 54 years old. Um, that, that church kind of became sort of like second church family for me. I'd only gone out, like I said, about twice a year, but I'd go out there, and the people are just amazing, friendly, and got to know the staff really well, helped them work through some really tough staffing issues. And, and then... Needless to say, uh, Sherwood, Pastor Sherwood, um, was a good friend, close friend. I had seen him in January this year at one of our denominational gatherings and kind of goofed around for a little bit and said, hey, we'll see you at the end of this year when you come out and preach. Um, so I'm going to be going out there this weekend, um, and I have to preach like three services, and I hate, I'm, just, I'm just not looking forward to it. I'm just not looking forward to it. Um, church is in shock. Church is obviously going through unbelievably difficult just time emotionally. But it also kind of has this double whammy because it was two years ago while I was in Sacramento that I got a phone call from one of our church folks saying that Kevin Brady, who was also a good friend of mine, was a vital member of our church, a guy who was homeless and was actively involved in our church and was a huge impact to a lot of people. It was out there in Sacramento I was preaching that I got word that he had died. So I flew back and a week later doing his funeral. So I'm not liking November. I'm, I'm, I'm like not liking November. November comes around and I get like depressed, really depressed. Um, so it's going to be weird I'm going to be in Sacramento preaching to this church family that's grieving and mourning while remembering that this is a month in which we lost a close friend of ours. So I covet your prayers, church. And I know I don't, you know, I don't do a very good job of sharing with you guys stuff like that. I just kind of keep it in and I just, but I felt the need to I felt I need to share because um, I need your prayers. I need prayers to sustain me. It's going to be very, very hard emotionally. Very hard emotionally. Um, life is short. At the end of the day, relationships are all that matters. Nothing else matters. Pastor Sherwood pastored a 3,000 member church. 
but he'll be the first one to tell you that the most important thing in his life were his friends and his family. What are you investing your life in? Your job? Your career? Financial success? You've heard me say this before. Nobody on their deathbed says, I wish I worked more. Nobody on their deathbed says, I wish I was more successful. Nobody on their deathbed says, I wish I had more money. But a lot of people on their deathbed says, I wish I wasn't alone. Um, uh, we, we are going to be focusing this entire month. Amy, David, good to see you guys. You guys enjoy your time away? Amy, you feeling okay? Yeah. When are you due again? 27th, okay. Um, this entire month is Homeless Awareness Month, um, and our church is uh, trying this month to bring awareness to this critical issue. And today, um, it's not really a break from what we've been talking about, because I think it's right on the lines of what Jesus was talking about throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, we uh, came to chapter 6 of Matthew as we're going through Sermon on the Mount, and I kind of did this began kind of a two-part little thing on prayer. And I just want to read this to you guys because it was such a powerful email. Um, Your message yesterday struck a chord with me and directly got at what I've known deep down has been an issue over the past several months. I've gotten out of the Word, a weak prayer life, and shutting God out of my life. Such an insidious habit that seems minor and inconsequential at first, but it ends up having a large negative effect that creep their way into every area of one's life and taints one's vision. Peter, for me, it happened like this. I got caught up with my schedule, marriage, residency, and then board studying. Every minute of my day over the past few months was consumed by board studying. Yes, I'm that person you refer to in your sermon who's incredibly disciplined with everything in my life. That is an objective measure of success. Getting up at four daily, working out daily, studying every second, renewing radiology case after case after case. And yet somehow I was still not making time for God. And it showed How did it show? God's voice was being drowned out by my own voice. And let me tell you, my own voice is not loving. My own voice is not caring. My own voice is not forgiving. My own voice is self-critical. My own voice is unforgiving of mistakes. My own voice is not satisfied with anything short of perfection. I would compare myself to others, literally picking out the one person in every area of my life I was striving for who was as close to perfect as possible and wonder why I was not as good as them and why I was falling short. I was constantly upset with myself and it was blinding me from all that I had. And then this weekend happened. 
series of random conversations with people I barely know caused me to wake up and realize just how much I have and how instead of being, un, in, how instead of being grateful for all that God has given me, I was taking it for granted, not appreciating what I had and selfishly wanting more and more and more instead of thanking God for all the opportunities given me and seeking uh, how I should utilize these opportunities. I was viewing everything I was doing as a failure and was constantly disappointed. I was focused inward on myself, drowning out God's voice and missing out on the joy He wants us to have with what he's given us. I was also no doubt missing out on other opportunities he wanted me to experience since I was only viewing things with the tunnel vision towards the end goal that I wanted for myself, blocking out anything else that got in the way. The timing of this weekend's conversations, followed by Sunday, was I truly believe God speaking to me and trying to get back in my life. Well, we are talking about Sermon on the Mount, and, um, and we came to this part. Um, open your Bibles to Matthew 6. We're going to just go ahead and, and tag this, and then, and then I want to, essentially, I'm going to kind of set up what I think is kind of the meat and heart of today, which is I want you to meet somebody who has given his life to working for the cause and issue of homelessness, and we're going to also meet a family um, who has gone through a season of homelessness and hear their story. Um, and I think it's going to be a powerful morning. But in, in uh, Matthew chapter 6, as we have introduced remarks, chapter 6, verse 5, this is when Jesus begins to teach us about prayer. And he says, and when you pray, right? And we just, we just paused for a moment on that word and last week. Do you remember? Because when Jesus says, and, before he launches his prayer, he's saying to us that prayer isn't a standalone for Jesus. It's connected. Because right before this passage in Matthew 6, Jesus spends four verses talking about the poor, our engagement with the poor, our engagement with issues of justice, our engagement with the issues of the needy in the world. And then in verse 5, as he launches his thing on, on prayer, he says, and, when you pray. Now, when you and I talk about something, we go, and it's connected to something. It's not a standalone by itself. In other words, Jesus is not, Jesus doesn't say, well, you know, I've been talking about the poor and engagement with the poor, engagement with the needy in the world. Now I'm done with that, so I'm going to talk about prayer. Let's talk about prayer. No, he says, I've been talking about the needy and the poor, and then he says, and. Why? Because Jesus doesn't pit serving against praying. He doesn't divide loving God with loving your neighbor. Jesus says those two are intimately related. They can't happen without the other. Literally what he's saying is if you're praying and you're connected to God, it'll drive you out. It'll drive you out. It'll drive you out to a life of mission. If you're communing with your heavenly father in deep intimacy with prayer, this is common sense. If you're communing with God, connected to God in deep intimacy with prayer, you begin to get your heart passionate about the things that he cares about. Your heart begins to resonate with the things that God's heart resonates with. Your heart begins to beat for the things that be God's heart. And as you're communing with your father, your life the result will be it'll drive you out for the things that he cares about. A life of radical generosity and courageous justice. Simply put, in Jesus' mind, the people who are most characterized by this deep inner life, characterized by this deep, incredible, deep inner life of prayer and communion with God, it's them whose lives will be most characterized by radical, sacrificial generosity 
and courageous justice with the world. So let me ask you a question for some of us. If our lives are not being driven out for the things that God cares about, what's your prayer life look like? What's your communion with God like? What's your devotional life and intimacy with God look like? But then there's a flip side of this, and I wanted to bring in this corrective because Jesus is also saying, if you really want to be effective out there, it has to come from within. If you really want to love your neighbor as yourself, it has to come from within. And we all know this to be true. You try loving people on your flesh? Has anybody, have you tried loving the unlovable people on your own? We have. That's hard. Nearly impossible, I would say. Jesus is saying, if you want to be effective out there in loving the poor and being involved in generous justice, it has to come from within. Truth be told, some of us are not effective, not just because we're selfish and self-centered, but because we're angry, we're bitter, and we're self-righteous. And Jesus says the most effective people are people for whom those issues that all of us have are being addressed by the gospel. It's Jesus, Matthew 4. Before he's being launched into ministry, he hears the voice of his heavenly Father. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Do you hear that voice every day? Church, look at me. Are you hearing that voice every day before you're launched out? Do you hear the voice of your heavenly Father saying to you, where does your acceptance come from? That's right, it comes from me. Where does your worth come from? That's right, it comes from me. Where does your value come from? It comes from me. Where does your identity come from? It comes from me. You want to be effective out there? Do you hear the voice of your Father? As we, as we pivot now and as we... Um, begin this journey. And today, uh, I, I want to set aside a little bit of time before we hear testimonies so on and so forth. Just kind of lay a theological, biblical framework. For some of us, this is nothing new. For some of us, this is sort of like, wow, we've heard that many, many times in the community. And for many of us, actually, this will be brand new. See, the reason why we talk about this, the reason why we care about this, the reason why this is an issue that's critical to us and want, we want to continue to grow in this area is because in vast number of churches, this is how the conversation goes. When it comes to issue of dealing with the poor, when it comes to issue of dealing with issues of injustice, a lot of churches say those are good things, but it's an add-on to the gospel. You know, it's an add-on. In other words, in other words, it's an optional thing. It's a good thing to do, but it's an optional thing. Essential is worship. Essential is teaching, preaching. Essential is evangelism. Essential is small groups. But it's an optional thing. The problem with that is Jesus didn't talk like that. Jesus didn't live like that. Show me in the Gospels where Jesus says, the helping the poor, giving your life in general, it's an optional thing. Jesus never talked like that. He goes, this is at the core of what it means to follow me. Matter of fact, let me, let me just, this is kind of the main point that we'll be, we'll be talking about. Jesus goes on as far as saying a deep social conscience and a life poured out in service, at least of these, is the inevitable sign that you really know God. That is the inevitable sign that you are connected to God, that you have a vital living relationship with Him, and not one of compliance and duty. It's at the core of a living vital relationship with God. So what do we do with this? Well, the passage that our church has kind of um, meditated on and our passage we've come to again and again for me personally as a church is a passage found in Matthew, uh, Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58. 
and again. Isaiah 58, what I want to do is kind of lay a theological biblical framework. And the whole, Peter, what does this mean practically how that you will hear loud and clear through our guests today. Isaiah 55, shout it aloud, do not hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people, listen to this, their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob, their sins. For day after day, they seek me out. Literally, what he's talking about, they seek me out, is worship. In other words, he's talking about people that are very diligent and obedient in worship services. They're going to church. They're involved in small groups. They're serving in children's ministry. They're tithing. They're doing all kinds of good things. And the Bible says they're doing it day after day after day. It's sustained. It's not sporadic. It's consistent and not irregular. Isaiah goes on. They also seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and is not forsaken the commands of God. In other words, their personal morality is perfect. They don't lie. They pay their taxes. They don't cheat. They don't sleep around. Their personal morality is spot on. Know anybody like that? They ask me for just decisions, and they seem eager for God to come near to them. If you're paying attention this morning, at this point you go, I thought you were talking about some rebellious people. I thought you were talking about some sinful people. So far, you're talking about somebody that I kind of want to be like. And then God says, you ask, why have we fasted, they say. You've not seen it. Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? There's a problem. There's a disconnect. God's not answering their prayers. God is not answering their prayers. Their personal morality is perfect. They're going to church. They're involved in Bible study. They're leading small groups, doing all kinds of things. And yet, God is not answering their prayers. Why? Listen to what he says. On the day of your fasting, you do as you please. And you exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and striving and striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fasting, I would say this, is this the kind of worship I've chosen? Day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? And then God lowers the boom. Verse 6, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Do you know how often the Bible says, and do you know how striking it is the Bible says, God comes along and says, I am the defender of the oppressed, the weak, the marginalized, the naked, the immigrant. God says, I am the defender of the weak, the marginalized, the oppressed. Do you know why that's so astounding and striking? When I go to Boston Sunday, somebody will say, how do you want to be introduced? And I'll say, tell them my name is Peter Hong, and he's the pastor of New Community Covenant Church. I'm a lot of things, but that's the main thing I do in public. God goes, here's how I want people to know me. Tell them. I am the defender of the weak and the oppressed and the marginalized. Tell them 
that I identify with, and I stand up for, that I advocate for, that I am their God, the ones for whom, unless God did something nobody else would do to the most vulnerable group in the world, God says, tell them, I am their defender. I am their God. Let me show you. This is, this is found so much in the Old Testament. You rip these verses out, you don't have Old Testament. Verses like this. Deuteronomy 10, 1, 17. For the Lord your God is God who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. And he loves the alien. By the way, that word alien is literally immigrant. We're going to be focusing on immigration in the next couple of weeks. Listen to what it means when God says, He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the immigrant, giving him food and clothing. Psalm 146, 7. He upholds the cause of the oppressed, gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord watches over the immigrant and sustains the fatherless and the widow. Proverbs 14, 31. He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Proverbs 19, 17. He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. Do you want to know how much God identifies with the poor? God says, when you give to the poor, you're giving to giving to me. Flip side, God goes, when you insult the poor, you insult me. Just, just let that sink in for a moment. God says when you give and lend are generous to the poor. It's not just something you do because it's a good thing to do. It just kind of floats out there. You know, it's kind of how we think. God goes, when you give to the poor, you give me. When you insult the poor, you insult me. The principle is that God is so personally identifying so closely with the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant, the most powerless and vulnerable members of society, in such a way that how you and I treat them, God says, is how you treat me. See, that's the only way that you understand this very familiar passage in Matthew. Where Jesus says in Matthew 25, you know, you know this passage. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, those who are blessed by the Father, take your inheritance, a kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes, you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Thirsty and give you something to drink. When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison to go visit you? The king replied, I tell you the truth. Say all of this with me. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. I, I can't read this passage in Matthew without some sense of fear. Are you hearing me? Be, because, because what Jesus is literally saying is the judge of the universe is going to look down at all the people who say they're believers and he's going to separate those who give lip service to those who say they believe and to those whose faith is real. And the Bible says, how will the judge know? 
How will the judge know the difference between those who gave lip service to, I believe in you, Jesus, and those whose faith is real? Jesus makes it very clear. It's not going to be where you're here on Sundays. It's not going to be, did you lead Bible studies? He says, here's how I'll know if your faith was real. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was homeless, you sheltered me. The judge of the universe says that the sign that your faith is real is whatever you did, one of the least of these. Why? I, Jesus says, am they. I'm the people that you least want to help. I'm the people that you least want to have contact with. Here's how I know the difference between those who say they believe and those who have actually experienced my supernatural grace. If you don't love the poor, if you don't love the hungry, if you don't love the immigrant, you don't love me. You don't love me. You don't have a relationship with me. It's a relationship full of compliance formality but it's not real you see why I, I shudder every time I come to this passage because I can't help but put a mirror in front of me and go Peter is your faith real is it legit a deep social conscience and a life poured out in service to the least of these that's the inevitable sign of real faith and real connection to God. By the way, if you're not a Christian here, you're going, I reject Christianity. Do you know what you're rejecting? That this is at the heart. If you're a Christian and you say, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, I follow, do you know what is at the essence? Hmm. Let's apply this, okay? And what does this mean? Let's go back to the Isaiah passage. Isaiah passage. Isaiah 56. Is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? God makes it clear throughout Scripture that what we do when we care and love for the least of these is not just some good things that good people do. What we do or fail to do is cosmic. Now, what I'm about to do I, I just, I, see, some people, when I, when, I, when I talk about this concept, they love it because it's like conceptual, theoretical, it's right up there. And then other people are like, I have no idea what the heck you're talking about. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it my best shot. And then hopefully what I fail to do at the end, when you guys hear stories, you will be able to. Why does God say this is a cosmic issue? Because the Bible says it's a justice issue. The problem is when you and I talk about justice in the West, we also automatically think of individual rights. I want justice. When the Bible talks about justice, it is this very powerful, powerful imagery. Let me try to paint it for you. In the background of Isaiah 58 and throughout the Old Testament is this beautiful image. Behind the concept of justice is beautiful word shalom. Everybody say shalom with me. Shalom. One more time. Ready? Shalom. Shalom. You've heard me say this before. It's not just hi or peace. 
Shalom is this really rich, multifaceted word that is woven throughout the Old Testament. Shalom literally means wholeness, universal flourishing, completeness, reconciling of all relationships. Behind the idea of shalom and throughout the history, uh, the Old Testament, was this idea that God built the world to be a place of shalom. What does it mean? That God built the world to be this place where there was interwovenness, interdependence, and interconnectedness of every facet, our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, and our relationship with the created order. The image that the Hebrews came up with was this image of a fabric. And I wish I had something physical to kind of show you. A beautiful fabric. And what the Hebrews said was this, every single one of us represents a strand or a thread on this fabric. And what God did was this, listen to this, God said all of us are threads, and God said God intended the world that every single one of us would be interwoven, interconnected, interpenetrating through every other thread. We've gone over, we've gone under, we've gone around. If you throw a bunch of threads on this table, it's, 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 not, it's not a fabric. It's a bunch of threads literally on top of each other, which somewhat describes our culture and our world today. But God said, the way I built the world is that every single one of you will be, will be, will be interdependent, interconnected, and interwoven to one another. And with this idea of this beautiful fabric that has gone around and under, and every single thread gone over, around, and under in such a way that the product is a beautiful fabric that's warm, that's strong, that covers that gives protection, that shelters, and delights. And this interwovenness is what the Bible calls shalom or harmonious peace. Shalom is literally complete reconciliation in every dimension so that all these threads got interdependent, interwoven with one another would create and would result in physical, emotional, social, and spiritual relationships that are right, that are perfect. Some of the greatest champions for justice in the world understood this concept. You may notice this quote. I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. This is Dr. King, by the way, writing this letter in Birmingham jail. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. This letter, by the way, was in response to religious leaders who said, you need to stay out. Do your religious, spiritual thing. These other things are, and this is Dr. King's letter to them. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied, it's beautiful, in a single garment or fabric of destiny because he says, and this is the key, whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. And the biblical principle that arose out of this found throughout the scripture is simply this. We belong to everyone else and everyone else belongs to us. This is why Isaiah says in verse 7, 57, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter that when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? If you're paying attention to Isaiah and every other verse, you're going, that can't be. Because Isaiah is literally saying flesh and blood. Flesh and blood in verse 7 is a synonym for the oppressed, the hungry, the poor wanderer, and the naked. The list of the needy found in these verses. And flesh and blood literally in Hebrew means blood relatives. 
what we would today call family. In this culture, with family meant everything. There was no individual rights. There's no individual future. Families where you got your identity. Families where you found your future. There's no future, no progress, nothing apart from family. Your identity, your fortunes, your success, your future were formed within family. Family was everything to you. And God says, the oppressed, the naked, the vulnerable, the homeless, the immigrant, they're your They're your family. In Luke chapter 10, somebody comes along and says, who's my neighbor, Jesus? Smart aleck attorney. And Jesus says that your neighbor is who? Anyone in need. Why? You're related. I go, I don't like that. I don't like that. Do you know why? Because now all of a sudden, the accountability goes way up. It goes way up. All of a sudden, I go, so it's not an option for me to just sit idly by and do nothing. It's not an option. Would you do that to your family? No. Then why would you do it for them? Well, I just do it when I have time. Well, would you do that for your family? No. Then why would you not do it for them? All of a sudden, accountability goes way up, and I go, I don't like that. And Jesus goes, you have a solidarity with them. You have an interwovenness with them. The poor, the vulnerable, the naked, the immigrant, in such a way that I am not blind to what your culture and your society is blind to. They're your family. They're your neighbor. They're your brother. And they're your sister. See, guys, think of that imagery Our culture and our society, our world today is not a beautiful embroidered fabric where all the threads have gone around and around each other and interdependent, interwoven. Today, it's like you take a bunch of threads and you just throw it up on the table. That's literally what it looks like. Thread after thread, literally thrown on top of each other. There's brokenness in human community because of sin. It's not a fabric. It's a bunch of mangled mess. When sin entered the world... The simplest way to explain our condition of the world, when sin entered the world, it literally began to unravel. Everything began to unravel. Do you not see, not just our relationship with God, but our relationship with another, all of creation, it began to unravel. And Jesus says, what I came to do in my death and resurrection is I came to reconcile, to put together, to bring together what was unraveling. And then he says, what you need to do and what I need to do, if you're a thread, he says, take your thread and begin reweaving it. Strengthen the fabric by taking your thread to weave yourself into it. What does it mean? That means if we keep our money, our time, our power to ourselves, for ourselves, if we keep our relationships, our time, our money for ourselves instead of sending them out into our neighbor's lives, we may literally be on top of each other, but we're not interwoven socially. We're not interwoven relationally. We're not interwoven financially. We're not interwoven emotionally. Weaving shalom to do justice means to sacrificially thread, to lace, to press your thread, your life, your time, your goods, your power, your resources into the lives of others. Simply put, you know what our mission is? To do justice? Look around where the biggest area of disintegration and 
brokenness, gray areas of inequality, and God says, take your threat, that is your entire life, your money, your resources, time, effort, energy, networks, your education, your training, your background, and he says, I want you to plow that. I want you to invest that. I want you to begin reweaving the fabric that's torn apart by sin so that the result is a garment, a beautiful garment that provides shelter, protection. Does that make sense? Say something. Does that make sense? Okay. (laughs) I love this quote. I don't know who said this, but the righteous are those who are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community, and the wicked are those who are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. Daniel Spotter, you like that? Is that good? Here's what it means practically. I'm just going to speak. There's some of you, single young adults, you make a lot of money. How many of you make a lot of money? <laughs> that was just a test. I wanted to see that. Somebody would actually raise their hand. I make a lot of money. I was going to be like, um, don't do that, no. Because if I asked the other question, which is how many of you like don't make a lot of money, all the hands would go up, I know. <laughs> if you make a lot of, listen, if you make a lot of money because you've been given resources, you've been given education, you got to go to a good school, you came from a good family, I'm going to tell you right now, as your pastor, don't feel guilty about that. Don't feel ashamed by, by, about that. Don't feel like you're somewhat less of a Christian because you make a lot of money and you're really good at it. You know what God wants you to do? Say thank you, Jesus, for your grace. And God says take all that, be generous with it. Take all that, plow that back into the human community. Take all that and invest it. So if you're a single young adult that's educated, making a lot of money, don't be selfish with it. Don't be self-centered with it. Be generous, radically generous. Pour that back in the community because without you, we don't have shalom. Are you hearing me? Without you, we don't have shalom. There are some of us who are called to the poorest of the poor to give of our entire lives for that. But we cannot do that. We don't have a warming center ministry if not for the radical generosity of people whom God has gifted time, resources, and talents to make money. And the work that we do and the work that we want to do, we can't do it without you. Are you hearing me? So that's what it means, practically speaking. But this is all the reason why the Bible says if you're not generous, it's not just stinginess. The Bible says you're being unjust. It's an issue of justice. It's an issue of justice. Jesus even says, Matthew 6, so I wasn't going to go there, but he calls gifts to the poor acts of righteousness. He could not have been more clear, you guys. Not living generously is not stinginess, it's unrighteousness. But it's not just giving away money. Because some of us are really good at writing that check and going, here, my work is done. Isaiah says, Verse 7, share your food with the hungry. Do you know what the word share literally means? It means to serve or to wait on. In other words, don't just write a check and go, here, I've done my part. God says, you serve them. You wait on them. The principle is simple and yet hard to do. God says, take every part of your thread, your time, your money, your energy, your resources, your gifts, and your talents. Take everything that God has given you as you represent that. He says, Look at the areas of most disintegration. Go into it. Plow. Invest your life. Go to the places of greatest disintegration, greatest brokenness. The most difficult thing for hurting people in the world to believe is the idea that God is good. 
the most difficult thing for people in the world who are hurting to believe is the idea that God is good. Do you know what God's plan is for making it believable that he's good? What's his plan? We are. God has no other. God has no other. For the hurting and broken in the world who go, how can God be good? God goes, you're my plan. This is the reason why, I'm just going to say this, and I'm almost done. This is the reason why you need to be here and you need to be involved. Do you see why the church, the church is that entity that God creates to say, you want to see a glimpse of Shalom world? There it is. You want to see a group of people that are living under the rule and reign of God? You want to see a group of people who are being reconciled to one another and to the world? The church. We can't do that if you're not here. We can't do that if you're not involved. We can't do that if you have a Western individualized version of Christianity that says, as long as my relationship with God is good, church is secondary. Where do we get our motivation to do this? Um, you know, some people get really, <laughs> Daniel, I was thinking about you in the cult. Some people go, whoa, the whole man, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves, to advantage the, 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 the weak and the marginalized, and the unrighteous are those who are willing to, you know, disadvantage the community, disadvantage themselves. That kind of sounds strong until you come to Second Corinthians chapter 9 or 8. It says, you know, I love that, you know, <laughs> you know. And just something, you know, the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich. And what? For your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. You know how I read that? You know how Jesus, though he was advantaged, disadvantaged himself, so that those who are disadvantaged could become advantaged. Doesn't sound like such a far-fetched idea, does it? Um, Yale professor Nora Ellen Gross wrote a book called Everyone Here Spoke Sign Language. In the 1980s, Gross was searching hereditary deafness on Martha's Vineyard. In the 17th century, the original European settlers were all from a region in Kent, England called the Real Weald where there was high incidence of hereditary deafness because of their geographical isolation and intermarriage, a percentage of deaf people increased across the whole island. By the 19th century, one out of 25 people in the town of Chilmark was deaf, and in another small settlement, almost a quarter of the people could not hear. Now today, because of the mobility of the population and marriage with off-islanders, hereditary deafness has vanished. The last deaf person to be born on the vineyard died in 1952. In most societies, physically handicapped people are forced to adapt to the life patterns of the non-handicapped. But that's not what happened on the vineyard. One day, Gross was interviewing an older island resident, and she asked him what the hearing people thought of the deaf people. And the response, oh, we didn't think anything about them. They were just like everyone else, he replied. Gross responded that it must have been necessary for everyone to write things down on paper in order to communicate with the deaf. And the man responded in surprise, no, no, no. You see, everyone here spoke sign language. The interviewer asked if he meant the deaf people's families. No, 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 he answered. No, everybody in town. I used to speak it. My mother did everybody. Another interviewer said, these people weren't handicapped. They're just deaf. 
one other remembered. They, the deaf, were like anybody else. I wouldn't be overly kind because they, well, they'd be sensitive to that. I'd just treat them the same way I treated anybody. Indeed, what happened was that an entire community had disadvantaged itself in mass for the sake of the minority. Instead of making the non-hearing minority learn to read lips, the whole hearing majority learned to sign. All the hearing became bilingual, so deaf people were able to enter into full social participation. As a result of, check this out, quote-unquote, doing justice, disadvantaging themselves, the majority experienced shalom. It included people in the social fabric who in other places would have fallen through it. When they had socials or anything up in Chilmark, why everybody would go and, and they, the deaf, enjoyed it just as much as anybody else. They used to have fun. We all did. They were part of the crowd. They were accepted. They were fishermen, farmers, everything else. Sometimes if there were more deaf people than there were hearing, well, everyone just speaks sign language. Just to be polite, you know. Deafness as a handicap largely disappeared. And then this. Perhaps the most interesting aspect of Gross's research was the revelation of how the hearing people had their own communication abilities enhanced. They found many uses for signing besides communication with the deaf. Children signed to one another during sermons in church. <laughs> or behind the teachers back at school. Neighbors could sign to one another over distances in a field or even through a spyglass telescope. One woman remembers how her father would be able to stand on a windy cliff and sign his intentions to fishermen below. Another remembers how sick people who could not speak were able to sign to make their needs known. In other words, the quote-unquote disadvantage that the hearing vineyards assumed, the effort and trouble to learn another language, turned out to be for their benefit after all. Their new abilities made life easier and more productive. They changed their culture in order to include an otherwise disadvantaged minority. But in the process, they made themselves and their society richer. Shalom. Shalom. That's what God is doing. He started it through the death and resurrection of Jesus, and God says, you, the church, are my instruments to further redemption. JD, come on up, please, is a young man. Tim, can I have some help with the chairs, please? JD is a young man who works for the coalition, the Chicago Coalition for Homeless. He's been a part of our church for a little over a year. Guys, I'm going to use these two mics right here. Church. Give him a warm welcome, please. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yes, yes. Can you get one more? One more. Thank you. Hey, man. Hey, how are you? JD, tell us a little bit about what you do. Okay. Get the organization involved in. Awesome. Yeah, so I'm a community organizer with the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless. I'm uh, they're specifically their youth and education organizer. So the coalition is an organization that uses community organizing and advocacy to kind of address the big picture of homelessness in Chicago. Yeah. So I focus kind of on the intersection of education and um, homelessness. So last year in Chicago public schools, there was about 20,000 students who experienced homelessness oh, during the school year. 20,000 20, Chicago students were homeless. Yeah, 20,000. And that's identified 
a lot of homeless students don't go up to their teacher and say, hey, I'm homeless. Yeah. So um, most people involved in the work think that's a low number. Yeah. How and why did you get into this? Uh, relationships. Yeah. So uh, I thought it was pretty appropriate you were talking about it. Yeah. So I'm from, uh, my wife Sarah and I are from Reno, Nevada. And in college. Anybody else from Reno? Please, one person. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody from Nevada? Yes! yes! We have one person in our entire country. Where in Nevada? There's like three places to live. Vegas? Okay. Vegas, nice. We can get along. We're in the same church. <laughs> Usually there's a rivalry between okay. Reno and Vegas. <laughs> um, so anyways, yeah. I uh, taught guitar to pay rent in college. And two guys who were living on the street, mm. Um, mm. they would panhandle next to the store that I would teach at. Their names were Big John and Little John. They were mm -hmm. a father and an adult son. Mm -hmm. So what started with a couple bucks here and there eventually became meals together, eventually became a pretty deep friendship in yeah. which um, I really came alongside them and tried my hardest to get them off the street. Yeah. Um, so it does snow. It's in Nevada, but it does snow in Reno. We're next <laughs> to the mountains. Um, so it would get cold. And on cold nights, I'd go look for them, try to find them in the underpasses where they would stay or yeah. the, the viaducts. They would sleep in, um, but eventually figured out there was a lot going on. Yeah. Um, Big John was disabled but wasn't collecting any kind of assistance. Um, he had lost all forms of identification mm. and had no way of you know, applying for that. So my wife Sarah and I came alongside mm. John and really helped him to get that assistance, but it wasn't enough. Yeah. Um, he was able to pay for a weekly motel for about three weeks out of four mm. in a month. And then on a college student's budget, I tried to help with that last week. It was, I never was really able to help with the full week. Um, and then on Christmas Day 2012, Little John had an undiagnosed autoimmune disorder. Mm. And uh, he had been feeling sick for months, but since he was homeless, he didn't think that a doctor would see him. And on Christmas Day, uh, he was rushed to the emergency room, uh, and his kidneys were in 100% renal failure. Uh, so they stabilized him, and they put him on dialysis. Yeah. But uh, six months later, he passed away. Mm. He was 28 years old. Um, and I think up, God had been teaching me something mm. in my relationship that I had built with Big John and Little John. And then when, when Little John died, it was, I was pissed off. I was mad. Mm. And I think it was the first time that I really realized that homelessness wasn't just an unlucky thing that mm -hmm. happens to people or some people make bad choices mm -hmm. and they end up homeless. Yeah. It was an injustice. Yeah. Big John and Little John had been poor their entire lives. Even when they had some stability in their lives, they yeah. were still just scraping by. Um, and I ended up getting involved in the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless because I realized I had no idea what to do mm. <laughs> about broken systems and mm. the injustice of poverty. So I moved to Chicago three years ago to get my master's in social justice and community development at Loyola, yeah. which is a really white middle class thing to do if you want to get involved in justice <laughs> issues. It's like, oh yeah, I'm gonna go to middle, I'm gonna go to grad school. <laughs> I was gonna say, and all the white but, middle class people said, yes. Hey, no, okay. it's, so, it's so true. And then I find myself... I love <laughs> how refreshingly honest you are, bro. So, but That's just so cool. It was what it ended up being for yeah. me. So I, ended, I didn't know anything about community organizing. Yeah. I told my grandfather I was becoming a community organizer. He freaked out. <laughs> um, it's rather politically conservative. 
Um, and of course, I moved to Chicago, and it happens. Um, but um, really, it was ended up being a really expensive uh, community organizing training. For, that's what grad school was for me. So think hard before you go to grad school. Anyways, I um, a friend introduced me to the coalition, and it was the first time that I think I found work that I felt mm. was um, addressing those things that yeah. had you know, butted up against. Yeah. And yeah. honestly, the system works for me. I'm yeah. a white, middle-class, heterosexual, evangelical male. Yeah. I could sit back, and the system's going to be like, all right, you, you work you're hard, good. you're going to yeah. do well. Um, but once I had friends that it didn't work for, yeah. uh, I, in my faith and my friendships called me to act differently. And the coalition was the first, is the first organization I felt, or the first time I felt I was involved in something that got at that bigger picture. J.D., when you and I, we've been talking and, mm-hmm. and getting to know each other better and hearing your story, um, what's one of the surprising things about homelessness that most people just are not aware of? And you kind of alluded to it up front. Yeah, so um, I think there's a narrative that we have about homelessness, especially people who have never experienced homelessness um, and it's definitely a part of the reality of chronic homelessness, people who live on the street, and that is a, absolutely a part of homelessness. But the reality is, is that chronic on-the-street homelessness has decreased by 20% nationally since 2007. Yeah, I, was, I was, like, shocked to hear that. Yeah. Um, and now, it's different places. Um, for example, in Seattle, permanent supportive housing does a ton to help people who are chronically on the street yeah. homeless. It's actually more cost-effective as well. Um, so I think that that narrative we have, uh, we have an image of who is homeless. Yeah. But the reality in Chicago, most of the people who are experiencing homelessness, uh, homelessness are women and children. So last year, um, over 100,000 people at some point during the year did not have stable housing. They were homeless. Mm. And 49% of those were women with children. Mm. Another 10% were unaccompanied youth, meaning um, teenagers and up to about 21 youth, homeless youth who weren't staying with anyone. So over half the people who actually experienced homelessness in Chicago weren't always on the street. Sometimes, some nights they are. Yeah. Most of the time they're living this really transient kind of life where yeah. they bounce from friend's place to friend's place, families to families. Sometimes they try to double up. I've met with families in Inglewood, two-bedroom apartment with 15 people living in a two-bedroom apartment. Yeah. Um, and this really kind of transient thing, often they're not connected with social services. If you're in a shelter, you can be connected to a lot of um, social services, but families who are doubled up aren't. Um, so I really work a lot with those families in my work with education yeah. because most of the students who are homeless in CPS are doubled up. Yeah. What's the, what's the figure again of the number of students that are... So the, the exact number is 18,669, but I always just say 20,000, yeah. around 20,000. Um, it's probably much higher, yeah. actually. So. Well, t- t- today, um, when J.D. and I talked about uh, this Sunday and, and, and me interviewing him, you know, he said, Peter, would you guys mind, if new community mind, if I brought a friend along who might be able to share the story from a personal vantage point? And I said, well, if the person is willing to do that, it's great. So last week, uh, J.D. and I had coffee with Marilyn, who um, agreed to come and share her story um, uh, with us. And, uh, and, and she's here with her four kids. And so can we give her a really big warm welcome? <laughs> you sit here.
Go ahead, JD. This one. Use this one. Yep. I know it's like a mine up here. You got to get through, get through all these wires and all this. Okay. Thank you so much for coming, everyone. Um, and you kids are right there. Can you guys? Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> Marilyn, it was a it was a pleasure meeting you last week and, and having coffee and uh, getting to know you better. Um, so share share with our church family just your story of how how you became homeless. Um, well, uh, my name is Marilyn. Uh, nice to meet you all. See everybody. Um, but I actually was born in um, Greenville, Mississippi. Um, I am the second youngest of eleven children. And I came here when I was nine. Um, so we kind of, when I came here. Oh, it's working. It's working. Yeah. It's working. <laughs> it's just not coming through this right here, monitors. Yeah. Yeah, when I came, uh, I was nine years old. Yeah. Um, so when my mom came here, um, we were staying with family and friends, like um, maybe three months at a time because she didn't have a stable place coming from the south. Uh, coming here. So when we came here, I was actually nine. Uh, we were kind of bounced around here and there trying to uh, get settled and um, going to different schools. But I didn't understand what was going on because um, everywhere I went, my mom went, she had me there. Mm. Um, I felt a lot of love. I didn't feel out of place. But I knew that we were going to um, different places, you know, here and there. And so I had to switch a lot of schools um, in the process of her getting stable housing. So eventually, as time went by, uh, she did get stable. Um, she found an apartment in uh, Stateway Gardens. It's a housing complex on the south side. Uh, with such a large family, we had like five bedrooms. So it was still kind of tight, you know. Um, and so I went through school, grammar school. I uh, graduated high school. Um, after high school, I decided I wanted to do something better for myself. So uh, I wanted to do hair um, on my own business, like design, design clothes and things. So in the process of doing that, um, I landed part-time job here and there. Um, so eventually, I had my first child uh, at 23. Um, Kind of raised her, you know, doing good, uh, still working here and there. And um, once I got her into school, I stayed at her school most of the time, volunteering. Um, and I decided I wanted to do something else. Uh, I had my twins. Um, mm -hmm. So it was kind of like slowed me down a bit. Because um, now I had three kids, yeah. you know. And I was a single parent, um, you know, working part-time. Mm -hmm. So finally, um, I found a job as a homemaker. Um, I was pretty good, you know, here and there. And so I found a, a two-bedroom apartment on the west side of Chicago mm -hmm. where I um, ended up having my son. <laughs> so um, at that time, you know, things were really tight because now it was two-bedroom apartment with four kids, yep. and I was still under work. Uh, underpaid because it was a part-time job. Yeah. Um, up until about two years ago, um, I lost my job in my apartment. Mm -hmm. 
And so I, my family, my children and I were um, placed at a shelter in Rogers Park, um, where I've been there for two years. So that's how I became homeless. Yeah. What, what's been the hardest thing or some of the difficult challenges of being a single mom um, of four kids and being homeless? Um, well, in the beginning, um, it was a lot of fear because um, I had been in my apartment for six years. Uh, I was able to kind of manage, um, you know, getting by, barely getting by. And so when I lost my apartment, it was a lot of fear that kicked in. Um, My children, you know, old enough to understand what was going on. So I got a lot of questions from them, like why we going through this and, you know. So I started to feel bad and beat myself up because I wasn't able to uh, do the things that I needed to do. So the challenges uh, was with them, had to face them. when I came to the shelter, it was, um, I've been there for two years, so at the time it was like um, 23, 23 women and nine children. Mm. So now it's 39 women mm. with 14 children. Mm. So it was very challenging because there's um, it's no rooms, it's a dorm, uh, dormitory style shelter yeah. where everybody sees everybody. Um, yeah all different walks of life. Um, you know, the only thing you really have is um, your family, you know, because uh, everything is together. You're yeah. just one family. Yeah. So um, it was challenging because moving and being homeless, I wanted to keep them in the same school. Yeah. So from, from Howard Street to get to the west side was like an hour and a half commute. Um, my daughter at the time, she was 12, she was responsible for getting her three siblings to school. Yeah. And they had to get up like five in the morning and take the train. Mm. So they were tired. Mm. Um, Sometimes they would mix, miss breakfast and uh, they would come home um, sleepy, you know, because they, the commute was so long and yeah. um, that I felt bad about that because they had to go through that. Yeah. And. Um, they will start grades, start dropping and things like that. So it was challenging because then again, they like, mom, what you gonna do? You know, mm. like, can't keep doing this. And I was in the process of looking for job and mm. resources. So I did end up finding a part-time job in Skokie um, as a bus attendant. Mm. So now I was really worried because I couldn't get them to school. So I worried about their safety and things like that. Um, but in the process of uh, them, me finding the job, I met JD. Mm-hmm. He had did a, a information session yeah. uh, at the shelter about um, the coalition and what they do. So I decided to uh, join the committee because um, they fall for educational rights and yeah. things like that. Yeah. And I learned that uh, with me being at work, at the time they were in school, I qualified for um, hardship bus transportation. So they were able to get bus from their school, from the shelter to their school um, with lots of time to spare without being tired. They got home um, like hours earlier, so they gave them time for themselves. Yeah. Uh, and I also found out that 
with me working part-time, I was able for to get free uniforms, free waivers um, for school because of the hardship program. And so uh, I met JD and I started attending the um, Homeless Coalition for their uh, committee meetings. Um, so that's how I ended up with the coalition and getting uh, the bus service for my children. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, I know you also do some work with JD and as you go to different places to speak and to do some advocacy work and things like that. Why is, why is it important for you, Marilyn, that you be involved in that work as you, as you talk about your experiences and, and try and help other people? Why is it important for you? Uh, it's important because I watched, um, because I didn't know that my children qualified for the school bus. Mm -hmm. And so after I got my children mm. situated, I was hearing like um, at least maybe 10 other moms in the shelter really stressed because um, they're like, I can't get bus cars. I'm going to the school. My kids don't have uniforms. They like had no source of um, income. So it was hard for them. And so when I learned uh, about the coalition and what they can do, I started telling the other moms, mm -hmm. um, you know, about the coalition and they can help you, like if the school was yeah. giving you a hard time, they, the coalition would, um, you know, they will assist you with the process. And that's why I did it, because I seen other single parents yes. that were going through, you know, some of the issues that I had. Mm. And we did, um, in the process of the coalition, uh, my daughter and I went down to Springfield with JD and the coalition, um, mm. talked to some legislators about cutting funding mm. for um, education, right, uh, homeless youth, um, because at Rogers Park, we still see a lot of uh, youth on the street, um, you know, that are homeless, and with funding, a lot of things were shut down. They had nowhere to go, mm. so we went down there to See the fight for more funding or to keep them from cutting the funding yeah. that assisted the homeless youth. Yeah. And we won. We stopped the cuts. <laughs> and we did. We stopped the cuts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we did. Amen. 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 Marilyn, my last question was when we talked, I asked you what your hopes and dreams were for the future. And you said uh, you wanted to do you're gifted in cooking and, 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 and things like that. You want to eventually own, a, own your own business, get yes. into catering, things like that. Tell us a little bit about that. What do you want to do? Um, well, um, my dream was, my dream and my prayers were answered because um, my children and I received our keys to our new apartment. Hey. Oh. Uh, um, thank, praise God. Amen. Yes. Um, hmm. Pretty recently, how many days ago? Like three days ago. Three days ago. <laughs> so uh, it was, That's it awesome. was, it was awesome. You yeah. know, God, he he answered my prayers all mm. along. He was there, but mm. he needed me to be mm. at the shelter to kind of to go through and help someone else. And mm. um, even for the children, they like um, mm. we were just there yesterday. And we was doing some cleaning, and um, they must the kids must have been dreaming uh, too because. Um, I was in the washroom, so I come out the washroom because it's quiet. And I was like, uh, I'm like, where are the kids? So I call, I say, twins. And they come out the closet. And I'm like, what are y'all doing in there? They like, we're playing hide and seek. So it was like, you know, to see them being, you know, we had been there for such a while. Yeah. And it was um, starting to kind of get to them. And, you know, I thank God because when, when we think we're at the end of our ropes, 
you know, he always show up right then and there, you Amen. know. Amen. And um, my dreams is mm. to keep helping uh, others and um, share edu uh, information. Mm. Um, one of my dreams is to, uh, I'm in culinary school mm. um, at Le Cordon Bleu for culinary arts. Mm -hmm. So my dream is to uh, get my own business, mm -hmm. catering, um, eventually a restaurant, uh, and to assist my children and others that when I go back to the shelter, uh, to give them encouragement and uh, to help them through their process as well. Wow. Kalia, <laughs> you want to say anything? If you do, if you do, come on up here. If, <laughs> if you don't, that's okay too. This is uh, Marilyn's oldest daughter. <clears throat> I was told you like to talk spoken word and poetry and all this other stuff, but I heard you also don't want to be like forced to talk. So, I was, so if you want to, you can. If you don't want to, do you want to share anything with the church? Um, I'm uh, real good at poetry. Um, I love dancing. <laughs> yeah. and, but um, as far as um, living in the shelter for a long time, I say like it's really helped me build my self-esteem and my uh, responsibility. Also my maturity for me to be so young. And um, our family has really, like, built a bond, and we've gotten tighter and also built a greater re relationship with God. Mm -hmm. uh, One of the things that Marilyn mentioned um, when I talked to her was that more than just giving money, one of the things that she was really blessed by with the shelter that she works at is the fact that people just come and volunteer their time. Mm -hmm. Marilyn, do you want to say something about yeah, that? Yeah, I just want to uh, go a little bit uh, back on what Pastor said about, um, you know, just writing a check and saying, oh, I've done my part. But um, since I've been at the shelter, we actually uh, been in partnership with the church, uh, Second Baptist in Evanston, yeah. and they do Thanksgiving and uh, Easter baskets. Uh, but at Thanksgiving time, you know, they come in with the food and, and drinks and everything. Yeah. But they, they serve and they sit down and eat in fellowship yeah. um, with us. And I was telling uh, Pastor Peter that sometimes money isn't always everything. Um, because out of those 39 women, um, some of the issues that they come through the door with, that money just can't. You know, right now, money is not an issue because right. they've been through through so many things, uh, domestic violence, uh, abuse. So it's just like when you see, uh, we have a, a lounging area with the TV. And um, so it's just like when you're constantly going past and you see a sister in there, she's in the dark with no TV on. And you wonder why she keep going in this room and nobody stops to say, you know, are you okay? You know, what's going on with you? So money, money can't buy somebody just coming in and mentoring right. to that sister or really getting her to help or getting to the deep roots of what her problem, yeah. you know, may be. Yeah. You know, so. Church throughout the next four Sundays, um, even though the sermon time might not specifically focus on this, you will have plenty of testimonies and opportunities for, to be, for you to be involved various ways we could serve through the warming center through the meals you'll also hear from daniel in terms of some of the work he's doing with housing just a number of ways you can be involved
Can we say a huge thanks to both JD and, and Marilyn? And to Leah. Father, we give you thanks for these powerful testimonies to share today. I know that you spoke in and through these lives and these testimonies. And God, if we've been challenged by you, help us to do something about it. Help us not to merely walk out of here having learned something. May we be people of action, mission, of living out your gospel as your light, as an alternate city in this city. We thank you for your open doors for Maryland. We thank you for the way that you have watched, protected, and you have guided, and clearly powerfully worked in her and her family. Father, thank you for allowing her to speak powerfully into our lives. We pray that as she goes on this journey, that you would continue to have your hand on her and use her as your vessel, as your instrument, as your testimony of your goodness, of your faithfulness, God. May she be a powerful voice for the homeless community. May she be a powerful advocate. May she be a defender to those without, without access to a voice. Use her powerfully in the lives of her family for the sake of your kingdom. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Amen. Have a great week, you guys.